Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Elois Joseph, who is the founder of the Greenwood Project, which aims to introduce Black and next students to the finance industry. Elois has been leading the Greenwood Project for the last seven years. Prior to that, she was a senior examiner with FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. And before that, she spent a number of years at Chicago Trading Company in trade support and compliance roles. And before that, she was on the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange in a variety of roles with several member firms. Elois earned her BA in journalism from Columbia College, Chicago, and her MBA from Northern Illinois University. She and her family live in the Chicago area. Lois, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you uh, being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's start with the Greenwood Project. So you started this back in 2016. What was the genesis? What led to its creation? Let's see, there were a couple of different things, but one, my story being growing up on the west side of Chicago, and if you're not familiar with the west side of Chicago, it's a very economically disadvantaged area within right. Chicago. So growing up, there were just career opportunities that I didn't know about and just things that I didn't see in my neighborhood. So I wasn't aware that they were available or that opportunities existed there. So when I was about 18 years old, I got an opportunity at the Chicago Board Options Exchange. I was just looking for a job, yeah. but I was presented with an opportunity that I couldn't miss out on. And that was the start of a 20 plus year career within the financial services industry. So I thought about how can we make this happen and work other ambitious, academically talented young people whose only issue is that they're in an area where they don't have exposure and access to great opportunities. And we did something about it. Yeah, which is great. How did you pick the name The Greenwood Project? Yeah, growing up, I'd always learned about the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is okay. also known as Black Wall Street. So considering that a lot of our business is done in the financial sector and we are African-Americans, I thought it was only fitting that we called it the Greenwood Project. So it's okay. paying homage to the name. And then again, when we started it, it was a project. So Greenwood Project. So how has it unfolded over the last seven years. What's, how's it grown? What's the state of the organization today in terms of, you know, the number of students that you're helping in a given year? It's grown tremendously. When we started this, it was a passion project. Yeah. It was a passion project. We started with five students who we were trying to see if we took these students from either the South and West sides of Chicago and placed them at financial firms of our friends, like small shops, if it would work. It was, a, yeah. it was literally a project. And the students loved the experience and the exposure. 
that they had. The firms loved that the students were so coachable and willing to learn and they wanted more. They wanted more. So the following year, we gave them more. And then it just kept growing and growing and growing. So now, due to capacity, we're able to accommodate approximately 100 students in our college program. And we also have a high school program. And there's 100 students, approximately 100 students there, too. Yeah. And I know the company I work for, Janice Henderson, is one of the companies that hosts your interns during the summer. How many companies do you have hosting at this point? We have hosts and partners who don't host, but they definitely donate and support the mission. So approximately 60. Yeah. Okay. And that's a combination of hosting partners and also funding partners. And does your funding come exclusively from those funding partners or are there other sources of funding that help contribute? No, at this point, it's the funding partners and those individuals like foundations that just want to support the mission. Which is great. That's great to hear. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And how many staff at this point? Five. Five. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I can tell by your laugh. Everybody does. Everybody wears many hats. Yeah. 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 We all wear many hats. So I've gotten a lot of exposure and experience. Well, see, professionally, I'm a compliance professional. To even be in the nonprofit space and then going into these different areas like running payroll and things of that nature, like I do that as well and got a vast skill set from from Greenwood Project. Being in any small enterprise, right, whether it's a for-profit enterprise or a nonprofit enterprise, you learn very quickly that there's not people hanging around waiting to do stuff for you, you know? Absolutely. You do a lot of things for yourself. Yeah. How do you select the students that you help place? We have a selective enrollment process. So there's an application, there's an interview, there's an essay, and also there's a transcript review. And the way we identify these students is we go on a roadshow. We go on a roadshow to different universities around Illinois. There is a lot of word of mouth amongst the students who are in our program and they may attend college out of state. But Mm. with social media, it's been amazing because the students are And I'm old school, so forgive me if I mess this up, but they're either tweeting or Snapchatting or TikToking. Whatever they do, it's interesting. And that's how we get our numbers and our volume up of interested candidates because they see our students having a good time learning and having a meaningful internship at firms like Janice. And now they want to know how they can get involved as well. So it's organic growth. It's been organic. Do you have to have an Illinois connection in some shape or fashion or do you not care about that? No, we don't care about that. The only limitations that we have there is just like capacity. Can we afford to bring in a student from another state and provide them with housing and things of that nature? So we try to keep that number low, but yet you don't need an Illinois connection. And how many students apply for those hundred spots that you're able to give in the college program or the high school program? More than 300. So it's hard. It's hard because you have so many great students. And then you say you're down to your last person and you're like, oh, we have person A and person B and they're both great, but we don't have enough opportunities. So what do we do? So that's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. You're running an admissions process by just a different type than a college admissions process, right? It's hard. Yes. I'm sure. Yeah. Do you care what economic, socioeconomic background that they come from or is that irrelevant in your process as well? We have a profile. We don't close our doors to students. But if they're coming from an environment where they have opportunities, we don't want to take an opportunity away from a student who really needs it. 
So our student profile is typically someone who is academically ambitious and they come from an underserved community. So that's who we go for. We're a major agnostic program. So it's, again, we're exposing and introducing students to opportunities that they didn't know existed. So we have a lot of community health majors, psychology majors, mathematics majors who say, hey, I'm majoring in math and I don't see how my math background would be good in the financial services industry. And it's like, hey, let me tell you what you can do with this skill, you know? So yeah, that's who we go after. Yeah. And flipping from the company perspective, what's a typical placement look like for one of those 60 companies that's hosting students? What is how a many typical do they host? Placement? Yeah. How many do they host? Yeah. What are your expectations of them? Well, we have a good mix. We have a mix of smaller shops who don't have a traditional or who may not have a traditional internship program. So they'll design something where they can give our student a meaningful internship. Other firms who may be larger, they'll, they may absorb a student into their traditional internship program. And then we have firms who are flexible, who's willing to work with our timeline and also accept a student who may not be a traditional finance major and still give them a meaningful business or corporate exposure to like business or, or corporate environment. Do a lot of the students that have gone through these internships end up going back on a full-time basis to the companies that they've done, done internships with? Yes. Interestingly, they have. So again, we started in 2016 and many of the students, again, this was a passion project. So when yeah. we started it, there was no five-year plan, but at the end of like two or three years, we had like a couple of students who graduated and got a return offer from the firm that they held their internship with. And we're like, wow, this is awesome. So now we have the five-year plan and how we manage a student's life cycle through Greenwood Project and getting them to and through college and then into a full-time opportunity. So I will say as of 2019, that's when we started seeing our student body matriculate into full-time employment opportunities. And the numbers are growing as the students age up and age out of our program. So it's been wonderful just watching that growth cycle. Yeah. So do you, for a college student, do you pick them up Mm -hmm. in the summer between their first and their second years, or do you pick them up later in their college journey? We're open to all levels within their college years. Okay. Yeah. Just as long as they have at least a freshman, their freshman year under them, that's when we take them. Any student who's either between their senior, their junior and senior year in high school, they go to our high school program and can matriculate into our college program. And if you get into the college program as a first year, you go mm-hmm. work for a company between your first and second year. Are you part of the program all the way through college if you want to be, or do they have to reapply every year? They do not have to reapply every year. We just ask at the end of the current year if they're interested in returning because we don't want to hold a student and make them feel like they don't have right. any control right. of their life. So if they had a great experience, we will survey them and ask, would you like to return to us next year? And a great majority of them, they returned. So the retention rate has been incredible. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine once they've gone through one of those summers, if they've had a good experience, like why wouldn't they want to do this again? It's a substantial help in finding a great internship and a program that, you know, the company's excited about. And obviously you're doing a ton to facilitate it. So, you know, it's great that they have that option, you know, to continue through. They do. They have the option to continue through. But it's interesting. We're dealing with with young people, college students, and they you know how kids are sometimes they think they know more than the adults and even though we're saying like listen stay here this is a great opportunity they still want to go and explore 
and that's yeah. fine. And we allow them to go and explore. But in 2019, 2020, that, that year, we had a number of students want to go out and just try something different. Yeah. And now they're back at our door like, hey, we just want to come back. We didn't like it. We tried it on our own. We didn't like it. We want to come back. And we're like, oh, we only have yeah. 100 spots now. We aren't this organization where you can kind of pop in and pop out. So that's been tough as well. Yeah, but I'm sure some of them, you know, they get that first year. I mean, my son did a brief experience with the hedge fund, I think, between his first and second years of college. And he came out of that six weeks and said, this is not what I want to do for a living. So that was good, useful information for him. And he went in a different direction the next summer. So I'm sure you yeah. have some part of your population that does that too. We do. We have a great um, part of our population that does that because here's the thing. We're major agnostic. You may have yeah. a community health major and they'll go to a desk and try something like marketing, but then they'll say, oh, I saw the compliance department while I was at this particular company and I was really interested. So how can I get into a compliance position maybe at that company or somewhere else? So now we try to give them exposure and an, and an experience within a compliance department. So yeah. one thing about staying in-house with the Greenwood Project is that we can probably partner and match you within our program, but with a different partner who can give you the experience that you're looking for. You were a compliance person. Was this your first real foray into the nonprofit world? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Always done volunteer work like during the summer, definitely around the holidays, the philanthropy, the charity, things of that nature. But this was my first time stepping into the world of nonprofit. Yeah. So apart from the fact that everybody wears many hats, what else has surprised you the most about leading a nonprofit? Interestingly, I my goal was to become a chief compliance officer for a financial firm, possibly an options prop shop. And surprisingly, I have fallen in love with what I do. The money isn't the same, but there's some type of gratifying feeling that I can't, can't really explain it, but it's very gratifying and it's very rewarding to be able to reach back and help a young person who's trying to find their way and give them the tools that I didn't have so that they could be successful and find their way. There's something that I say is, can you really consider yourself having made it if you don't help anyone else make it? Yeah. And I'm really living up to that. Like I go into these communities, I meet the students where they are. They see that I'm a person who's actually come from the community, grew up in public housing, was educated by the Chicago public school system, went to state school and earned my master's degree. And they're like, wow, they see a success story and yeah. they believe that they can achieve it as well. So it's one thing to have professionals around and mentors are great. But when you can actually see someone and believe that you too could walk in their shoes and they have a story similar to yours and they've made it. Now it feels tangible. It feels like you yeah. can really do it. And that's yeah. what I provide to the students. And I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah, I was watching a video of your visit to the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. Got the gavel in your hand and you could just see the sort of pride on your face. I mean, it's an amazing experience to get to go do that. And to be up there on the balcony with the kids around you, pretty darn cool. Yeah, that moment was so surreal. It's like, as a child, I've watched the news and saw the, the opening bell and the closing bell. And to yep. just to be standing in that spot, just taking it all in was surreal. Yeah. It truly was. And I don't know if the students like really understand the gravity of that moment, but for me, it was heavy in a good way. And I appreciated yeah. that moment. So you're leading a nonprofit. 
helping a couple hundred students in the course of a year, leading a team of five. How would you describe the leadership style that you try to bring to the organization? Considering we are still in like startup mode and we have so many students, this isn't one of those environments where it's like, hey, I'm the boss and what I say, that's what goes. It's more of an environment where there's feedback. We're pivoting sometimes on the fly because again, we're still in a startup mode. We're still learning as we grow and the different, the diversity and thought is really appreciated. So it's how we grow. So I'm leading from a place of playing a position in the front and the back. Yeah because I've hired some really great people with strengths that I don't have and I don't know it all. So when it's their time to lead, I step behind and I do what they say is best because I hired them to be the expert in that particular place. So for example, I'm director of education. She has an amazing background and that's why I hired her. Yeah. I mean, when you've got an organization that's at the size you are right now, I mean, every hire really matters, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and had you worked with any of the people before or are they all new to you? They're all new to me. They're all new to me. And interestingly, the chemistry is great. The work ethic is great. We have one of those, our chemistry and energy is we don't just shut off at five o'clock when it's time to go home. If there's something that needs to be done, we're going to work later to get it done because we believe in the mission. We believe in our student and we understand that we're a five person team, but it doesn't yeah. feel like work the team, we all feel like we're contributing to something great. That's an amazing feeling. And I always tell the team, like, look, log off. Don't answer that email tonight. And what are they doing? They're answering that email anyway. So that's a good feeling. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge purpose-driven element to what you're doing. And I think for people who come to work in that environment, it feels different than probably for most people who work in a for-profit institution that they just don't feel that maybe strong sense of purpose that I would imagine your team does. I would agree. And coming from that environment, I get it. I see the difference. I've lived the differences in both arenas and I'm in love with what I do. What's a typical day look like for you? I wake up at 5 a.m. just to have some me time Okay. because at seven o'clock in the morning, that's when I'm digesting the emails from the previous day, looking at notes and my task list for today. And then I block off a couple of hours just to respond to emails and get notes and things like that together. And Mm. then roughly about nine o'clock, that's when the students are calling. And now I'm speaking with firms and checking in with my team about 10 o'clock in the morning and just whichever direction the day goes in for the rest of the day until about about six o'clock. That's when I try to wind down a little bit. But all the students have my direct number. So... My phone is ringing like, hey, Lois, can you help me answer this question? What do you think about this particular internship? Or how should I dress for the interview? Is this color okay? They call me their second mom. So it's interesting. And the team at work, they call me their work mom. And I'm like, I'm not that much older than you guys, but they still call me their work mom. So I think that's funny and cute all at the same time. I would imagine there's a sort of ebb and flow to the year too. Your summers, you've got everybody placed, but you're probably monitoring and making sure they're doing okay on a day-to-day basis. And then you get into your selection period and your matching period. It's got to have a a sort of a a rhythm that plays out right over the course of a school year. It's totally a rhythm. And every cycle is a busy season because like you said, we have our recruiting season, we have our placement season, we have our program season, we have our fundraising season. So we're always busy. We're always in a busy season. It's just which busy season we're in at this particular time. So yeah, we do have a great flow. 
Yeah. You've commented multiple times about how much you love what you're doing. Would you change anything if you had the power to change it? I wouldn't change a thing. I would go bigger. I would actually go bigger and start younger. That's what I would change. I would go bigger and start younger because the impact that I've noticed that the team and I have made is, listen, it's been extraordinary impact in such a short amount of time. And the training that we invest in the students is four weeks. I think to see a real change, I would love to start a school Hmm. and work with kids in elementary school just to give them a shot at a good education, giving them a shot at good education, a lot of STEM-focused classes, a lot of finance-focused classes so that the students are aware earlier the financial services industry, the various firms, and the various opportunities that are available to them and are prepared to enter them. So let's talk a little bit about your pre-Greenwood background. You've mentioned a few times that you are a compliance professional. So you were most recently working for FINRA, the Mm -hmm. industry's financial industry's regulatory body. So describe a little bit what you were doing when you were working for FINRA. Yes, I was a senior examiner and it was member regulations and sales practice. So basically monitoring trading activity, employment practices, electronic communications, and everything that goes into a FINRA exam for licensed professionals at financial institutions. So I was on the exam team that actually traveled. So I got to visit a lot of great states, a lot of great cities, and met a lot of great people, conducted a lot of exams. Great experience. Got a lot of knowledge from doing that type of work because prior to working for FINRA, I worked for a Chicago trading company, which is an options prop shop. And I spent a great bulk of my career there. So I got to see compliance from the inside, working from a firm's perspective. And to see it on a bigger scale, working from a regulatory perspective, it was much different. The rules still applied, but as far as like the exam and what goes into an exam and the just the auditing of records and things of that nature was a great experience. Lots of institutional knowledge, lots of great training. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of people go back and forth between being in compliance for a firm and being in a regulatory organization. And certainly you can carry a lot of that back and forth. To your point from a minute ago, on one side, you're kind of inside helping maintain compliant activity. And on the other side, you're coming in from the outside, making sure that what everybody's doing on the inside is actually compliant. Yes. And then also something about being a compliance officer, no one ever wants to invite you to their parties. (laughs) (laughs) And if you come to the table, if you go to the table to sit with someone at lunch, they're like, what did I do wrong? And it's like, hi, can I sit here with you? Can I sit next to you? So no one ever wants the compliance officer around. And then once they know you work for FINRA, like they really don't want you around. So I'm happy to be in a place where people are inviting me to come sit down at lunch and inviting me to their parties. I'm sure that feels good. (laughs) It does. It does. You spent time with a trading firm, Chicago Trading Company, in a few roles before moving over to FINRA. You were doing some other things besides compliance when you worked there, right? So when I started out on the trading floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange, I was something called a price reporter. And that was the entry-level role that updated the ticker anytime someone made an option to the last sell of an option. So I was hired to do that. And at the time, they were paying $10.25 an hour. And that was a big deal in 1997 because the minimum wage was $4.25. And I had worked at Taco Bell. I was an 18-year-old kid fresh out of high school, right? Mm -hmm. So I had worked at Taco Bell and McDonald's making the $4.25. I worked for a little while at UPS. 
and they paid $8 an hour, which I thought was great, but they went on a strike after the holiday. And that's how I landed in this amazing opportunity at SIBO. So I started out as a price reporter in the equities, went to the index, the OEX. From there, someone poached me and I became a clerk. And then I was poached two more times after that. Then there was a layoff and I went to CTC to be a battery runner literally a battery runner. So this is when everything was converting from paper to digital and the battery life was like 20 or 30 minutes. And I took the job and I said, if I could just get my foot in the door, I'm going to do well. And that's what I did. I got my foot in the door. I ran batteries for probably 60 days. And before you knew it, because I had worked the phones from Mark Duffy, who was like the chairman of the board for the Chicago board for the CBOE. And I was standing in a pit and the phone rang and the trader was busy. And I jumped on the phone, took the order, announced it, let the market maker fill the order. And he's like, you can do that. I was like, yeah, did you see my resume? (laughs) So before you know it, we started a brokerage execution uh, service called CTC Access. Yeah, that started something different. I went on to become, that's when I started compliance immediately after that. And spent 13 years, I believe, on compliance or 10 years. And then I went on to FINRA because I wanted to become a chief compliance officer. And I knew that FINRA would catapult me into that type of position. So coming out of West side of Chicago, economically challenged area and getting that opportunity, what do you remember when you look back on that time as your biggest learnings, like the biggest eye-opening moments? Interestingly, I still see myself as that little girl on the West side of Chicago who just had all this hope, right? Like I hoped for something great. I didn't know what something great was, but I just knew I wanted something better. And again, let me preface that by saying I was filled with love and support. I just didn't know I was in an underserved community. So now when I look back on it and I'm able to help so many others, it's a full circle moment. I feel amazing. I have another little story for you that I think is so fitting for this moment. Okay. When I went from working in the equities to the OEX pit, there was a man named Grant Rucklick. I stood next to him in the pit and I would enter it, pretty much enter his tickets majority of the time. And one day he said to me, he said, hey, Lois, my clerk is leaving in two weeks. Would you happen to know of a person who's interested in a clerking position? Now, from my limited perspective of just the world, the trading floor was those people who held trading positions were white males and the clerks were young white males. Mm -hmm. So when Grant asked me this question, I'd only been at SIBO for maybe three months. I was determined to go out and find a young white male to tell him about this amazing opportunity because I wanted somebody to get this job. So when I told Grant, I said, well, give me a second, give me a few days. Let me see if I can find someone who would be interested in this role. Because in my mind, I wanted to go find a young white guy to come and take this role. And Grant said, huh? What do you mean? Why not you? Yeah. And I said, you're right. Why not me? And I went home, I got my resume together on my electronic typewriter and I got my good interview suit. I interviewed for the job and I was told by many of my peers that you're not going to get this job. They don't give us these types of jobs. Mm -hmm. Guess who got the job? I got the job. Yeah. And then I was poached by another firm and another firm. I was told that I wouldn't pass my series seven test. I have a series seven, series four, series 63, 65, so on and so forth. And so what I think I've learned from that is just do it. Why not you? Yeah, exactly. Why not you? Yeah. Maybe that should be the name of my book. Why not you? If I (laughs) decide to write a book. (laughs) When you think about the different things that you've done over the years, what are the consistent strengths that have helped you be successful? I like challenges. Yeah. And it's interesting the way that my mind works. 
like you hear people say, okay, if you want to start this, you need to sit down and you need to create this plan and understand the process. And then your A, your B, your C, if this doesn't work. And I like to do things and learn along the way. Like, yes, I do sit down and think about it, but trying to draft this perfect plan that may get derailed once you get to step number two, that doesn't work for me. I like to just get in there, get my hands dirty and just make it happen. And that's how Greenwood started. I called up my friend, said, hey, do you guys, can I take your child down or your your college student down to the SIBO with me? And they're like, sure. I didn't have a plan to start Greenwood. I just, just started. Are there areas that you feel like you've had to work to develop over the years? Absolutely. (laughs) Because I jump into these different arenas, I read a lot. Thanks to YouTube, I'm able to watch some YouTube videos and learn things online quicker than I would if I were to take a course or things like that. Now, again, I take courses as well, but there's just a lot of, there's definitely gaps in my understanding of things and I'm okay with that, but I'm also willing to do what it takes to make sure I can close those gaps. So I'm always learning, always looking to learn always looking for feedback and how to do better. Yeah. Do you have particular areas that you're focused on learning right now, where you're focused on learning right now? Absolutely. The fact that Greenwood Project has grown at the rate that it has grown and Mm -hmm. that my background is pretty much in compliance, I would like to, I would like to have a better understanding of people management at this level. Yeah. Because here's the thing, I'm responsible through Greenwood projects for the livelihoods of people with families and just making sure that I'm in tune with empathy, but also being a manager that gets results. And I think that those two can definitely coexist. I want to make sure that I'm aware of my blind spots and, and that I'm a good leader. Do you have, other than sort of the way that you start your mornings, are there particular routines or habits that help make you effective? I'm just starting to get into affirmations and understanding how powerful they are. I am starting to believe in the power of manifestation Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So that's something that I'm learning about and and trusting myself. And then also making some time for me because for seven years, I've invested, I forgot about me. I've invested so much time into the Greenwood project, into developing the student, into developing a program and there's so much that went into that, that I forgot about Elois. I honestly, and again, the improvements that I'm doing for Elois are to be better in the workplace. Yeah. I would love to start doing more improvements on Elois, the person. Yeah. So I got to stop neglecting me. Yeah. Which is, I think, hard, especially hard when you're an entrepreneurial kind of environment and and you are, it's just a nonprofit entrepreneurial environment. Right. And yeah. I saw the other day, a list of Y Combinator guidance for uh, entrepreneurs. And there was one thing it's about taking care of yourself, get enough sleep because you can get, let yourself get consumed to the point where you, you don't really take care of yourself. You aren't living a healthy life when you're in yeah. the midst of one of these things. Yeah. Also vacation and just me time and understanding now that me time doesn't, it's not taking a bath. Me time is actually investing in me. And I think as women and and moms, we've been trained to believe that your me time is when you're taking a bath. No, that's a necessity. That's not your me time. Your me time should be time that you take away from everybody and everything to just invest in yourself, whatever that means. Yeah. What are the things that you do to, to help you recharge and stay energized? I've been intentional about putting time on my calendar to go out to dinner yeah, and to go to 
I haven't been to the movies in probably 10 years. Wow. I went to the movies for the first time last week. Yeah. I went to go see Dungeons and Dragons. That's an old school favorite. Yeah. But first time in 10 years going to the movies. I went skiing for the first time in November. I was intentional in putting that on my calendar. I actually yeah. hadn't been on vacation in since August of 2013, 2023. So I went somewhere twice last year and it wasn't business related. And I actually turned my phone off so that I wouldn't get any phone calls, any emails, anything. And it felt good. Yeah. So I'm starting to be intentional about the lowest. In order to take care of Greenwood, I have to take care of me first. And I'm starting to realize and understand that. Yeah, absolutely. So what's ahead for you? What's ahead for the Greenwood project? Well, we have an exciting 2023 coming up. We've finished onboarding our incoming students. We're ramping up, just getting everything together with the programming, fun nights with our students, like taking them to meet with the Chicago Bulls and things of that nature. And just really excited. The students are calling, the families are calling, the posts are going out on social media with the excitement. So just looking forward to just diving in and having an amazing summer. Yeah. Anticipating the success stories from the firms, from the students and the families. Yeah. You mentioned four weeks of training earlier. So do you take the students in on your own for a period of time and then they go out to the companies that they're assigned to for the summer? Yes, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. What are the things you look to do with them in that four weeks? We have a summer intensive training program that Mm. each student must complete when they're entering our program for the first time before they are allowed to go to one of our partner firms. And in that summer intensive training, they receive professional development. They receive interview prep. They receive resume workshops, mock interviews. They participate in a lunch and learn daily. They meet industry professionals so they can ask questions about the jobs, the roles, the college majors, things of that nature. They also get a boot camp style introduction to accounting and the basics of finance. They also learn DCF modeling during that mm-hmm. time. So we, again, we're major agnostic. And before we send students who are non-traditional finance majors out to a company and they're not even familiar with the lingo, we bring right. them in house. We give them their professional training. We bring in our partner, our education partner, which is training the street. Mm. And they give like our financial training, our DCF modeling, our accounting, things of that nature. And they must pass that with a stock pitch competition at the end of their four weeks. And then they're off to the the trading firm that they've been matched with. I just literally wrote an article about financial skills and how important they are, even if you're not a finance person, because I've worked with so many people over the years who just don't really understand the basics of revenues and expenses and profit margins and fixed costs and variable costs. And you don't have to understand all of the intricacies of how something is going to be accounted for on a balance sheet. But at the same time, you need to understand how does the company work for make money and are they making money? So it's good that you do that for them. A couple last questions. Yeah. When you look back at the early part of your career, You know, what do you wish that somebody had told you back then that you know now? I wish there was a Greenwood project around so that I could have participated and got all of this good training and mentoring. Interestingly, I got my first mentor at 35. Now, there are definitely people who took me under their wing and they may have shown me some things within the industry, but actually coaching and developing me to be um, for a specific role or opportunity or just just developing a skill set, 
I didn't realize the power of a mentor until I was 35 and wish that I'd been intentional about mm. partnering with a mentor at least two decades sooner. Yeah. So I've always had great working relationships, but I did not understand the power of a mentor and also someone who's a champion for your career. Yeah. And that's something that I teach my students, get a mentor. And it may not be asking a person, can you be my mentor? Because professionals are pretty busy yeah. and mentoring seems like a time commitment that they probably can't commit to. But yeah. if you can go to them and say, hey, can I get 15 minutes to run this process by you? And you give me your feedback. That's coaching and mentoring without the mentor realizing that they're committing time, even if it's yeah. 15 minutes. Yeah. And I think, you know, the difference between it's good that you point out the difference between a mentor and a sponsor or champion, right? Because they do play their overlaps in the roles that they play, but they're also a bit different, right? A mentor is going to give you guidance, but they're not going to take you under their wing and really pull you along. Back to your point about have you really made it if you don't bring others with you? I mean, that's really what that champion sponsor mm -hmm. role is. And it's important. It's very important. It's very important. And again, if I could do it all over again, I would definitely look to work with someone as a mentor and for someone who's a sponsor. Yeah, absolutely. If you can find yourself in those situations, it's a good place to be. And it's hard not, you know, I mean, you were 35, right? Before you feel like you had a, a real mentor and better late than never, I guess, but that's late, yeah. right? So you missed out on that yeah. for the first 15 years of your career. Any last career lessons that you want the audience to take away from our conversation today? Yeah, some of the takeaways that I think are very important is one, work with a mentor. Two, understand your manager's managerial style and if they are a boss or a sponsor for your career, because those are two different things. And try to mm -hmm. align yourself with a sponsor. Number three, why not you? Do not listen to the outsiders saying that you're probably not good enough or you'll probably never get this job try it. There's training, there's coaching, and there's ways to be developed if you have the right personality. So go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. So thank you for spending the time. I mean, you and I met only briefly last summer when I was out in Denver yeah. and the company was hosting that get together for other companies and, and the students. And I was certainly impressed by what you had created. That was my first real exposure to the Greenwood Project. So glad we got a chance to meet then. And maybe I will be out there when you're out there. If you're back out in Denver this summer, I'll be out there at some point. I just don't know when yet. Sounds good. And I'm looking forward to it. And it was a pleasure meeting you as well. And thank you for this opportunity to join you and talk about, talk yeah. about the Greenwood Project, talk about my background. Yeah. You're trying to help a population of kids who otherwise wouldn't get exposure to the financial services industry. For me, this is a passion project, just trying to help people find better purpose and happiness in what they're doing professionally, because too few people have it. And that just seems like a tragedy to me that so many people are not really feeling that sense of fulfillment in their career. And that's what led me to start this. So, yeah. Well, thank good. you for doing this. It's definitely very much needed. Yeah. appreciate that. And uh, have a good rest of your day. All right. You too. I'd like to thank Ilois for joining me today to talk about the inspiring work that she's doing for Black and Latinx students at the Greenwood Project, as well as talking about her own career journey. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks and have a great day. 
Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.